The music you just heard was from a piece called Calvary Ostinato by composer Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. It's one of seven tracks on a new album on Sadie Records called Difficult Grace, starring cellist Seth Parker Woods. It is funded very generously by the Dew Foundation here in Chicago, and we are very grateful for that funding. And those of you who've listened before to these podcasts know that every time we have a new release on CD Records, we have a new Classical Chicago podcast. This is episode number 60. I'm Jim Ginsburg, founder and president of CD Records. As I mentioned, the album is titled Difficult Grace, and it stars in the role of cellist and on vocals as well, Seth Parker Woods. And Seth is my guest on this podcast. So hi, Seth. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Quickly, I'll tell a few things about you, and maybe you can fill in anything I forget. Okay. You've been hailed by The Guardian as a cellist of power and grace, and have established a reputation as a versatile artist and innovator across multiple genres, and you have projects that delve deep into our cultural fabric, and this is certainly one of them. The New York Times has called you an artist rooted in classical music, but whose cello takes him and his concert goers on wide-ranging journeys. And this album certainly is one of those. This album, Difficult Grace, also exists as a live concert, and you've presented it, among other places, at the 92nd Street Y in New York, UCLA, the Harris Theater here in Chicago. You're also a member of the new music ensemble, Wild Up, which gained you a Grammy nomination in the most recent cycle. You serve on the faculty currently of the University of Southern California and have previously taught at Buffalo and the University of Chicago, where the project we're hearing on this podcast was originally born. Also taught at Dartmouth College, University of Miami, Northwestern University, Chicago Academy of the Arts, and you've also been artist in residence with organizations including the Seattle Symphony. I do have to ask about one reference in your bio to something called Iced Bodies. Can you explain what that is? Iced Bodies actually premiered in Chicago in 2017. It's rooted and inspired by a work from the Fluxus art movement titled Ice Music for London by the conceptual artist Jim McWilliams and cellist Charlotte Moorman. So in this performance installation, which I just retired, I just did the last performance that I'll probably ever do this past January in Minneapolis, I play a cello literally made of ice that has a series of microphones embedded inside of it. Over the course of about two and a half hours, it being an ephemeral durational work, I play it literally, or I play on top of it. The sounds in which I make are diffused into the museum or gallery spaces via a series of shards of glass with transducers that are attached to them. So over the course of about two and a half hours, I play it and then eventually start to break it down. So by the very end of the performance, what we're left with is just the shards of ice, lots of water, and all the internal electronic guts, we could call them. On top of that, there are layers of myself reciting the poetry of Nair Wahid, who came to deep fame around 2014, 2015, reciting two works of hers from her collection of poems titled Salt. Wow. You think people can understand what's meant here by wide-ranging journeys. (laughs) To turn to the current project, which is titled after the first piece on the album, and I assume on the show as well, Frederick Gifford's Difficult Grace, can you talk a little bit about your inspiration for and the genesis and evolution of this project, including 
how it worked into your concurrent time at the University of Chicago and the Seattle Symphony. Yeah, so the work Difficult Grace predates both of those locations. The work in and of itself started in 2017, originally as a work that was going to be live cello plus interactive electronics. Over time, we found a way that it would eventually just be live cello, speaking cellist, as well as a fixed media part that is multiple layers of cello, but also multiple layers of voice. The work in and of itself, the title Difficult Grace, comes from a line from Dudley Randall's poem Primitives, which was published in the Anthology of Black Poets on Broadside Press, which Randall founded, which was based in Detroit. So that line, Difficult Grace, comes from the third stanza. He says, We go back to them, spurn difficult grace and symmetry, paint tri-faced monsters, write lines that do not sing or even croak, but that jolt and are hacked off in the middle, as if by these distortions, this magic, we can exercise horror, which we have seen and fear to see again. So essentially, from my perspective, he's looking at a space in which we are existing, and maybe, just maybe, if the society or the world or the communities in which we are living in is something that we are not happy with due to corruption, due to sadness, due to whatever it is, maybe it is better to tear it all down and rebuild it in a way that's much more just. So the idea of layering, the idea of looking introspectively to where we actually are in the world, which I think is where we are now Mm -hmm. now in many ways. Mm -hmm. So it is timely in that way. And this is from 62 that was part of a collection called Cities Burning in 1964. It still resonates And so what we did with the work, it has multiple layers. There's the poem, which Frederick Gifford put into an algorithmic system and come out with a wide variety of new scramblings of the lines and stanzas. Many of them still retained much of the same ethos. And then I took those new orderings and then created new versions of those on top of that. And that became part of a series of one of three scores. Two of those scores would be recorded only for what we're thinking of as the tape part, the electronic part. And then the other one would be the one that I would do live. And those orderings you only hear in the live version. Mm. And on top of that, then the same type of idea of creative process happens also with the cello part. There is no notated pitch class material. Well, actually, that exists for all the other compositions on the album. This one, it's more dramaturgical directions. And then from there, I improvised all of the layers. So there's two separate cello collections of layers that you hear only in the fixed media part. And then there's a live version. And those layers you only ever hear in the live version. Essentially, they're guided improvisations in that way. And so the certain parts I really stuck to. I found that these work really well together. These gestures have found their way to underscore, overscore the textual material that's happening in the rest of the cello, but also all of the text from Randall himself. So it really is this assemblage. So then as we think about what it is to use the title, the name in and of itself, it's really an exploration through looking back, but also looking forward, looking at the layers and the ways in which we move through the world, how we have adorned ourselves, how we search for better understanding of our communities, how we find and search for better understandings of ourselves. I've said in past interviews that 
in some ways I look at this project as semi-autobiographical. Not all of these stories or words, of course, are mine, but in many ways I find a lot of myself in them or my relatives. Well, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that word adorn because in his notes to the program, writer John Fallis specifically quotes writer and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston. Her 1934 essay expounded on this idea of adornment, talking about what she calls the will to adorn, uniting a variety of African-American cultural articulations. Can you explain a little bit more about this idea of adornment or will to adorn and how it fits the program? Yeah, so that comes from an essay that Hurston wrote titled Characteristics of Negro Expression. So it's been two parts. She talks about the idea of adornment of the African-American expression through clothing, through attitude, through music, just a wide gamut. But even before that, earlier in that essay, she talks about the idea of metaphor and simile. So if I can quote her directly here, she says, the metaphor is, of course, very primitive. It is easier to illustrate than it is to explain because action came before speech. And then we get further into this idea of language, of music, how African-Americans have found their own way outside of what has been laid out via those that have been in power, even through what we think of as dandyism. So this takes hold very much so even in the works of Natalie Joachim, who's featured here, even in the poetry of Kimi Alabi in the collaboration with Ted Hearn, which also is featured on this work. But even in this theater of sound and layering we see in the Alvin Singleton work, which I'm sure we're going to discuss much later here. For me, adornment and this unabashed adornment, the idea of being so radical in who you are and being able to express that regardless of who's looking or what anyone is saying and how you layer that inside of your own life and as you search to find out who you are. As we mentioned, the title track, Difficult Grace, uh, by Frederick Gifford, is also the opening work. Uh, Does this piece for you encapsulate the album, and if so, how? It does. I probably can go on and on about the, the layers in this, but it really does. In a way, it's trying to look to the past in order to understand who we are and how we've arrived to where we are now. And all that is inside of that. And I've tried my best <laughs> curatorially. And hopefully that all of the works do answer or at least question facets of that as it's been laid out by Randall. So that's a thread that runs throughout the program then. Yes, exactly. And of course, all these works were not created at the same time, trying to be in conversation with them. I hope in some ways they do talk to each other and there are tendrils that strewn them together. Well, tell us a little bit about Frederick Gifford and your relationship with him, please. So Frederick Gifford is based in Chicago and has been for many years. And he teaches at DePaul University on the composition faculty. He was actually maybe the first composer I met when I moved to Chicago from Europe in 2016. I had spent eight years living in Europe prior to that. And it was actually by his partner, flautist uh, Shana Gutierrez, that I met him. And then started the idea, maybe it would be interesting if you would write something for me or be in collaboration to create something. And that must have been late 2016 or maybe early 2017. At that time, I had been doing so much, and my first album had come out that had been dealing with so many works around electronics or connecting to interactive electronics that I was like, I don't want anything with voice. I don't want anything with electronics, just something acoustic, just like simplistic cello play. And then over time, Mm -hmm. all of those layers of things that I said I didn't want (laughs) 
<laughs> found their way into this piece. So here we are. It's been a rather organic collaboration and getting a clue into who Fred is via his longstanding work with electronics and electronic studios in the U.S., but also in Portugal, having spent many, many years living in Porto and working in electronic studios there. It was quite interesting to see a little bit into his process before even working on this piece in a work that he had actually written for Shana that deals a lot with these same areas. There's a, a layer of agency that is given in these works and trying to bring out as many possible creative colors through giving room for the performer in that way to guide part of this. You mentioned that the piece started in 2016, but it had this evolution, as you just mentioned. I seem to remember you performing it at a pandemic online concert while you were at the University of Chicago, if I remember correctly. Correct. Yeah, that was by the Gray Sound Sessions that we started through the Gray Center while I was on faculty there. So when everyone was performing at home, in their living rooms, in their bedrooms, <laughs> <laughs> it feels so long ago now. My goodness, that's where we were. So that was the very first version. And even in that time, I was actually cueing. So all of the layers of cello were very much so cued by me at the time. And then only as we realized this may actually at some point go on the road, we created a version where all of the layers, based on the, the timings when I would bring certain material in, that it seemed to flow and work really well together. So I worked with Fred and he solidified essentially what we're thinking of now as the tape part, the electronic fixed media part. So now all of the other layers, which are about six now, those are very much so fixed, just in a, a wave format file. And then I play all of the live and speak all of the live parts in real time. Excellent. Now, in fact, I was going to ask you about all that processing and layering, uh, so I'm glad you beat me to the punch there. But <laughs> speaking of the speaking, this, as you mentioned, sets a poem uh, by Dudley Randall, Primitives. Where would you say for you does Dudley Randall stand in the pantheon of poets, and why did you and Frederick Gifford choose this poem in particular? He's a major figure in some ways forgotten. There is a generation or there is a collective of artists and thinkers and inquisitive citizens that I think that do know about him or at least know about the broadside press or, or maybe just about the anthology of black poets. He is one that has been overshadowed by the Hurstons, by the Angelous, by the Ralph Ellis's and Baldwin's. He's someone who was active in the same period in time and one we have to thank for having collected so many of these poets that we know and those that we don't know together as part of the anthology that now exists today. I first knew of him, but didn't necessarily know about how wide-ranging his actual work was. But where it started to come into focus for me was actually through a TV show called This Is Us. Mm. And they feature a collection of his poetry there. And wait, is this like the Dudley Randall or are they making up a fictional character for the show? So then I did some Googling about this poem and I was like, oh my goodness, this is like, so that began. And this is maybe 2014 or 2013. So I started really getting into this poetry and then I found another collection by Dr. Melba Boyd and she brought together just his work so grateful for that and that's how this all began and then I eventually when talking to Fred I was like let's think about who or what we could set what type of text what are we going to draw upon something that could drive this work at least and then I oh there's there's Dudley so I gave him a collection of things and then primitives 
ended up being one of the ones, and then we finally settled in on that work. Excellent. Well, I should note, by the way, a different Dudley Randall poem, Ballad of Birmingham, is set as a song on Baritone Liverman's album that we released a couple of years ago, Dreams of a New Day, with a wonderful setting by Chicago composer Shauna Pebolo. And I'd urge people to check that out for another example of setting of Dudley Randall. But speaking of this setting, can you talk a little bit about your approach to the poem? Why does what you say jump around so much instead of just following the poem in sequence, or at least some sequence. Yeah, so that is due in part to a creative process by Frederick Gifford. He basically put these into an algorithmic system that would then re-scramble, that reorder, or give new layerings for them. So there's about, I think, 10 different iterations of the different lines. And so we went back and forth with these and kept scrambling to find ways of reimagining them so they weren't necessarily direct as we think, oh, we're setting the poetry of X composer and Y composer, but looking how can we think about a new way in which we envision them trying to harness the ethos of it at the same time. So this is something that very much so was driven by Gifford. And then just in consultation with me, trying to find ones, okay, does this still fit together? And then when I started to cut it all up and create the actual lines that I would actually perform, making sure that there are parts that still formulaically stuck to the framework with that which Randall originally composed. Not all of it does, but there are fragments here and there that still have that. And then there's moments where, especially when you hear it all together in real time, There's multiple voices that are coming in, and the way that it layers, you start to hear many of the patterns or original lines that are there. But the point was to be able to use it as a basis that that generates enough textual material that we could draw upon to create the bedrock for the work. Well, in fact, it opens with you intoning words that come from actually the last stanza, so I thought people could have a chance to hear that. I thought we'd play the, about the first minute and a half. So here is the opening of the opening work on Seth Parker Wood's new album, Difficult Grace, from the work titled Difficult Grace by Frederick Gifford. Fears and guilt conquering a little rubble. Bump! As if by them the middle the poems of old spaceless landscapes jolt and weigh stiff as if Distortions can exercise as stiff meters. Cities, poems of old are hacked off.
You just heard the first minute and a half about of Difficult Grace, a piece for cello with voice layered in electronically. And performing both as cellist and doing the vocals was the headliner of this album, also titled Difficult Grace, and that is cellist Seth Parker Woods, my guest on this classical Chicago podcast. Seth, obviously it took some work to put all that together with the different elements of recording and layering. Can you talk a little bit about how that process worked with you and Elaine Martone as co-producers and also Sadie Stalwart, Bill Malone as the engineer? Yeah, when one actually experiences this in the live setting, both as orator, but also as cellist at the same time. So, so much of the choreography between the vocals and the cello are intertwined. And we felt that may work as a one pass, but I think it was going to necessarily start bleeding through. So we decided to separate them. So I did all of the cello parts first, and then went in and then added all of the vocal parts. There are specific cueing points in the fixed media part, so it allowed me to follow along. The whole opening, we did that in its own separate take, where it's just singularly the voice by itself. So then from there, we started to piece it together. Fred actually was able to come in for a session and listen in and give some guiding material and comments. So that was actually really helpful to have him there in the space as well, so he can get a glimpse in on the process as we created this mediated version of the work. And then from there, in the mixing process, working with Elaine to figure out, well, one, the tracking, but also more specifically, just the spacing of how we're experiencing this still very much so in a 2D version through the stereo diffusion, but also how to make it feel even more vast and robust to have somewhat of the same feeling that you'd have if you saw this live. You're referring there to all the processing that is done on the voice. Some of the processing that's done on the voice with the amazing mic that Bill brought in, (laughs) which I really, really loved, just colors it in such a beautiful way. I think it's from the 1930s. Oh, this is his Frank Sinatra mic, right? Yeah, this is the Frank Sinatra mic. (laughs) Yes, it's an RCA 44. Yeah. There you go. For us, it was really trying to figure out the placement and the coloring and the overall presentation of the work and the pacing of it as well. So it was a lot of back and forth between the three of us, but more so trying to help also guide what this was going to feel like and look like and how to color the mixing in a way that was darker but brighter but open in a way that it doesn't exist in some ways in the live show. As we go through this, I'm very glad when you can point out how the album and the live show are different experiences. The next work probably isn't that different an experience in the live show versus the album because it is a simpler affair with quote-unquote just solo cello, no vocals, no electronics, and I'm speaking of a piece by Coleridge Taylor Perkinson who lived from 1932 to 2004, and the last 10 years of that was actually here in Chicago at the Center for Black Music Research. He was the director of ensembles here. I'm very glad to say that Sadie was able to work with him on some recordings when he was here, including an all-Perkinson album, which features the entire black folk song suite from which you play a movement, and that's with Tahira Whittington as the cellist for that. That's from about 20 years ago now. Uh, We already heard an excerpt of this short movement at the top of the podcast, which is a pizzicato movement. What would you want to say about the piece, which was originally written in 73 and its history, and why you choose to include it in your program, both live and on this album? Yeah, well, this piece has been with me for well over a decade. I remember when Tahira was recording this, and then eventually it came out and great acclaim and became more and more obsessed with it. Mm. 
But this movement in particular has always like, stuck out to me in amazing ways. And the first time I actually performed this was 2018 at the Gardner Museum in Boston. And for me, as I started figuring out what the show in and of itself was going to be, I started moving certain pieces in and out of the laboratory version of this mm-hmm. once we finally got it up on the road after the lockdowns. It had such a beautiful contrast, but also very much so was in conversation with the Gifford work. There are these ideas of and the influences of the blues melodies. There's beautiful harmony and counterpoint and polyphony that's clearly inside of this. But we really see this beautiful display of mixture of both the identity of the cello and as its position in Western classical music, but also within this deep vernacular of black music in America that's in conversation together. And for me, the idea of these blues melodies and gospel that's all wrapped up one instrument doing all of these voices that are moving back and forth with this very clear ostinato that pens it down. Once I realized I had pretty much the final set version of this show that now tours, it was important that I made sure I captured this. I think of both the Difficult Grace and Calvary Ostinato as this beautiful coupling together. So one hits you <laughs> right out the gate and fizzles down, and then the other one just lulls you into this beautiful groove, and you just observe it all happening at, at once. Excellent. So next comes a piece that, like the Gifford, was commissioned specially for you, and so is also a world premiere recording. I should note there are four world premieres on record on this album. Can you tell us about composer Monty Adkins, how you know him, and how this piece came about? I first met Monty in 2012. I was just starting my doctorate at the University of Huddersfield in the north of England in West Yorkshire. He, along with the composer Pierre-Alexandre Tremblay, who was a longtime collaborator of mine, they run what's called Electric Spring, which is a big electroacoustic electronic concert festival that happens in Huddersfield every year. A few months after the historic Huddersfield Contemporary Music Festival, which has been running since the 60s there. And so I'd gotten to witness some of his other large electroacoustic works, and I was just blown away. I guess in true Seth fashion, I approached him about writing for me. And he was like, oh, I actually haven't written for the cello yet. But he has these large cinematic soundscapes. So we started in on this, looking at a few series of gestures, ideas, and then he went away and then came back with a multi-movement work. And this was in 2014. It was commissioned by the Swedish Arts Council. We were doing a larger project that was in connecting a series of Swedish composers with British composers and performers. We presented that originally in the Netherlands in Dordrecht, which had this huge cello festival there. Over time, we realized, oh, maybe... I think it was Monty actually was saying, oh, maybe we should do another version. So then I did another version of recording all the layers, which were all the electronics. I just did them all as cello because he came to Dartmouth at that time when I was teaching there, once I moved back. And then we did another version where now all of the multi-movements now had all been combined down into a singular larger movement, which is what exists now in this 10-minute work. The ethos behind the work really is looking at the idea of going on a long journey, especially for cyclists and runners. And through that, once one hits this apex or you crest, you know, the top of the hill, 
we get this runner's euphoria or cyclist euphoria. And so the both of us bonded over that at the time. And I was a long-distance cyclist, and he himself long-distance runner. And so this creates the nucleus around the creation of the work and building it. And so it's gone through multiple versions, and the one we have now is the one that's existed for many years now. So it was important that I captured this in the work and found a way that coming out of the first two pieces in the show, one could almost bathe in this giant sonic hug and find a little bit of themselves. It's both emotional, because also at the time that we were premiering it, there was a loss of a parent on my side. So the work for many years is rooted in this sense of loss and rebirth and the beginning of new chapters. Because just after the loss of my father, maybe six months afterwards, I moved back to the States. Mm-hmm. The work is inspired by an image that the composer created, which is a freshly fallen snow on the fragile bare branches of a tree. And then this image was subsequently processed and overlaid on itself several times. How does that process relate to the process of how the piece is constructed? Yes, yeah, so a film that the video maker Zoe McLean, who's based in London, she created this when four or five years ago, when we first were starting to present the work in concert well after the premiere. And yes, I do use this film and there are now other cellists that are performing the work now, which I'm really thankful that it's happening. They're also using the film, maybe not on the same large cinematic scale that I am in theaters, but they are also using the film. And Zoe did such an amazing job in trying to capture the spirit of the work. There's footage from the Lake District that appears in the north of England that appears also in the film, but there's also parts, especially in the opening, during a big snowstorm in the north of Norway that's also captured there. Can you talk a little bit about how Atkins translated his visual concepts, and I think you used the word tendrils earlier to describe it, into a musical one, and how these pre-recorded electronics are used in combination uh, with the live cello line, both in performance and how it was done for the recording? There's a series of pitch materials that he extrapolates over the course of the 10-minute movement. It's ABA format. The B is really the big apex of the work. The cello in and of itself has a two or three note material. We really get into this technical side of it. Eventually evolves over about five minutes. So it's two notes and the lengths and durations of this material over time starts to elongate from three beats to five to 10 beats, and then more pitch class materials. We almost are dealing with this very chromatic linear movement in the cello part. And then the electronics create this ambient sound world around it that almost hugs it. But in the very beginning, the cello emerges out of that. Think of it as the cello being quite shy or this idea or a moment or a gesture not quite showing itself and over time becomes more and more brave and pushing more and more towards its true self. And so around the six minutes, six and a half minutes, you really get the full breadth of what the cello is and what Monty is really trying to express through this cello line. And then it crests and then everything starts over again. So this motor, this idea of cycling, of running, and I don't know what can really call it, locomotion, let's call it that, <laughs> starts over again. It doesn't crest in the same way. It just morphs just a little bit. And then just as we started in the beginning, this whole apex 
folds its way back to the beginning, and it folds back into the big texture. So it's large-scale lyrical writing for the cello. There are no extended techniques in that way, just virtuosic lyrical writing and playing for the cello. And it's really one of my favorite works to play from this contemporary medium. Well, that's a beautiful description. I thought we'd hear the part that leads up to that crest. So we'll hear about two minutes from the middle of the piece, pretty much exactly the middle of the piece that leads into that crest or runner's high, as you described it earlier. So here is a two-minute excerpt from Winter Tendrils by Monty Adkins, as performed by Seth Parker Woods. So you just heard a section right in the middle of a piece by English composer Monty Adkins, a piece titled Winter Tendrils, as performed by cellist Seth Parker Woods, performing both the live, as it were, cello line on top and the electronic lines underneath it. That's one of seven pieces on a new album by Seth Parker Woods titled Difficult Grace. And if you like what you're hearing, and I sure hope you do, I want to make sure you know how to find the album. Of course, it's available on the Sadie Records website. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. And you can purchase it there, or we also have a link to the various streaming services where you can find it, such as Spotify and Apple Music and others. So however you like to consume your music, I hope you will want to check out this album. Well, the next piece is the first of two by Natalie Joachim, another musician with a history on CD Records. Natalie is co-founder of the acclaimed duo Flutronics, which is a flute and electronics duo, as the name might suggest. She was a member of 8th Blackbird as the flutist in that ensemble for a number of years and appears in that role on two CD recordings, in fact, 8th Blackbird's last two CD recordings. In fact, this will be her fourth appearance on CD Records overall. As a member of Flutronics, she appears on the most recent album by Third Coast Percussion. Recent commissions have come from the St. Louis Symphony, 
So Percussion, Room Full of Teeth, Amani Winds, and the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, as well as from the Spoleto Festival USA. Her recent album that explored her own personal Haitian heritage as a composer and vocalist received a Grammy nomination in the Best World Music Album category. She is currently Assistant Professor of Composition at Princeton University and has held positions at the Hart School, Bang on a Can Summer Festival, the Perlman Music Program, and many, many others. She is quite accomplished. Seth, I should ask how you know Natalie and came to work with her. Well, we first met in 2016, maybe that winter period after moving back to the States, in Chicago, actually. We were both based there at that time. We sat on a panel on music and expression. But I'd known of her maybe more than 10 years before that, in the early years of flutronics, as they were just getting started. And I'd heard about these two flutists that were doing this music. They were in New York. It's funny, our paths, we've been in the same cities, but (laughs) never quite met. And it was only in Chicago that really brought us together. But then we were in Los Angeles to present a program of music by... Julius Eastman. It must have been 2017. And that's where the nucleus of this piece came from <laughs> over lunch. So that's how we first met. And I was a fan of what I'd already heard. And she was at the time working on her solo record, Famzaiti, at the time as well. So I find that these works have all come together. And you say the new work, of course, we're talking about The Race 1915. And the other work on the album, which was a pre existing work, is titled Dam Wenyo. We'll discuss them actually in reverse order and then play a musical excerpt from the first uh, for efficiency's sake. So starting with the Dam Wenyo, it's an expression in Haitian Creole, which means these are my ladies. And in this case, there are pre-recorded vocal tracks, but in this case, they're not you, Seth. It's actually Natalie (laughs) who's on vocals. How did you work with her to create the piece? Can you also talk about it as a feminist statement? The work Damwinyo is an ode and tribute, one of giving one their flowers to all of the women, the aunts, the, the sisters, the mothers, the cousins that have really helped shape who she is and the woman she has become today. This is a tribute. So this work originally was written for Amanda Gukin for her Ford Music Project. And many of the elements, listening to this work, you hear how they find their way even into her big solo record, Famdaiti. There's a series at the very beginning of the work you'll hear, there's a field recording of these little kids playing. These are actually Natalie's nieces in mm. Dantan, Haiti, South Haiti, where her family has a beautiful farm there. It's a field recording. So the family is very rooted inside of the recording. And then all of the other voices you do hear throughout the rest of this work are all Natalie. So there are layers of both vocalese and breath work that's being on display in rhythmic patterning. So all of this was recorded predates me. But what was interesting was to find a new mix for this, like dark and the color just a little bit that gave it a bit more seduction a little bit more blues feel to it so working with natalie and working with bill to really sculpt this out in the way that i think felt more authentic from what i'd heard before and as i made my way through performing this work over the years and found my own performative version of it so it very much was still a collaboration even though the fixed media part had existed since 2017 finding a new way to give it a new life for this record so dom was composed in 2017 and two years later she wrote 
for you, the race in 1915 for this project, another one of the world premieres on this album. And it's based on both a visual art series and historical texts. Can you talk about both? At the time, we were both reading The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson and so deeply moved by the accounts that were presented there in that amazing book, but also bonded over this fascination and the work of the late painter and artist Jacob Lawrence, specifically looking at his migration series panels from 1940-41. And it just so happened, I had started a collaboration and just working with Uh, the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C., and for those that don't know, they own part of the migration panels, and MoMA in New York City owns the other half of them. What connected us so deeply, something that Natalie pointed out early on, was just the vividness of the coloring with which he depicted African-American people moving from these southern towns and cities to what we now know as these major epicenters across the country. Even in some of the most gruesome situations that they had to endure and and work through, you still have this amazing layering of color and, and clothing leaning back to this idea of the adornment that Hurston references. As Natalie's creating this work, and also looking through the archives, which are actually at Northwestern University, right there in Evanston, we see something very interesting. In the year 1915, the journalists, which were putting out these weekly publications or editions, we see a change in labeling of African-Americans. They now are referring to them as the race, race woman, race man, race farmer. And we looked back at 1914, 1913, and it doesn't exist. It's only in 1915 they start to reference African-Americans as the race. By happenstance, I'm in Seattle in my first year of my residency as artist-in-residence with the Seattle Symphony, and I meet the painter and artist Barbara Earl Thomas, who was the last living protege of Jacob Lawrence, who Lawrence, for those that don't know, also taught in Seattle and lived the last big part of his life there. So through that and in collaboration with her, I was able to get some of the rights to be able to use some of these works and study them in even more detail. And so uh, as I connect back to the Chicago Defender, Natalie noticed in one of the issues, on the front cover of that issue, there was um, a hymn or a song, and that's titled Praise God, We Are Not Weary by Tom Brown and Tom Lemonnier. And what's interesting is I was also then looking maybe six months later at another anthology of just publications and texts around the migration and what appears, this same song that's connected to all this history in Chicago. So I thought it was quite beautiful that this song was still speaking to both of us in two different settings that had nothing necessarily to do with the Chicago Defender, but that's where it first, at least as we were searching, it first appeared there. So compositionally, this is not text, which I'm reciting, by the way, in live, in performance while playing the cello. It's not non-fictional text. They aren't poems. These are recounts of actual situations or things that were happening to people in the not-so-distant past. They were heavy, so it was important to try to replicate or mimic some of the same vividness that Lawrence did with the coloring and the positioning of people in panels. So you hear this thumping and pounding, insistent, colorful electronic beat that underscores much of the actual composition. And even Natalie quotes 
the song by Tom Brown and Tom Lemonnier, Praise God, We Are Not Weary, as well. So it's a way to kind of tie them all together, not just take the text from the defender, but try to also reference this song that has still to this day exists and still is sung in the Baptist churches. Now, some of those Jacob Lawrence images, those actually appear on your live programs, correct? Correct. There's six of the panels, including the first, the third, the fifth, I believe, and then a few of the later pieces exist in the live production of the show. And since you mentioned Barbara Earl Thomas, we should note that the cover art by Barbara Earl Thomas is a piece titled Joyful Noise from just last year, 2022. And it's a picture of you at the cello. And I guess you could also call it a little bit processed. How would you describe it? So this is actually Barbara's way of creating, at least for the last 10 years, but all of her works, they're all cut from paper. So she uses a series of exacto knives and she cuts out the main frame. And then underneath that, she layers different layers of colorings, similar to Lawrence in that way, through many of his works. So you see a clear reference. But for this particular work, Joyful Noise, which is part of her latest solo show that was in New York City, you very clearly see an ode and tribute to Lawrence, and it's specifically to the very first panel of the Migration series, where you see a series of people lining up to go to these different city centers, New York, Chicago, and maybe Philadelphia, I think is what he puts in there. But it's mimicking a drawing tribute directly to that original panel. So it's bringing the two of them together. The way in which she cuts the paper, even down to the details of my hand or down to the details of the hat or the paper boy hat that one of the little kids wears in the background, you see such beautiful movement, the way she layers it and the way she puts it together. It's quite amazing. And if you see it up close and personal, you really see the uneven cutting of the lines. But when you step back to take the whole thing in, it really feels like it's floating in a way. It's quite marvelous. And the way she's able to create depth, even in a 2D setting, it really feels like it's quite 3D. That's a wonderful description. So the texts, as you mentioned, are chosen from the Chicago Defender from editions published in 1915, hence the title of the piece. And they're quite stark. It opens with descriptions of lynchings and other race murders. I've chosen, by the way, an excerpt from the second half of the piece, and the words there are, The race that has slated for the country, felled the trees, built its railroads, labored day and night, was not given opportunity. And this is another case, I assume, for the recording where you recorded the cello line first, then layered over the vocals? Yes. Before we hear that section, though, I I do have to ask about the last lines that were chosen here. Any effort to deprive us of our rights should be referred to the authorities because such is against the Constitution of these United States. This being written in 1915, was this written ironically or aspirationally? It's hard to say. I I can't speak (laughs) for the writer. I speak as being African-American. We are a constitutional people written in, given the rights, based on maybe that we can clearly say that haven't... The things that were promised, I think, have not fully been cashed in on. And so in that way, they are speaking to this idea that ones that are going against, ones that are looking down upon Black people or doing atrocious things, which definitely in this time and during the migration was definitely happening, especially in the South, these things should be brought to justice and that we are worthy and we 
we're supposed to have the same rights that all others are actually being given. Any efforts to do other than that definitely need to be reported. But of course, reporting in that day and age would have done nobody any good other than possibly get them killed. Exactly. Yes. But it definitely a call to action and definitely something truly aspirational, as you do state earlier. Well, speaking of calls to action, I feel like that's the basis of the music in the section. So here is about a two-minute section from Natalie Joachim's relatively new piece written for this project, The Race, 1915, as performed, vocals and cello, by Seth Parker Woods. The race that is slated for the country felled the trees, built its railroads, labored day and night, was not given opportunity. identified with this intelligent and progressing race should allow this just heard a section of a very powerful piece titled The Race 1915 by Natalie Joachim, based on lines from the Chicago Defender, a historical black newspaper from Chicago. Those lines from 1915, as the title implies. The performance was by the performer on this album titled Difficult Grace, Seth Parker Woods, and he's doing both the cello line and the vocals. Now, in between those two pieces by Natalie Rochem, we hear a work by Alvin Singleton titled Argoro II. And this is the oldest work on the program, actually, written in 1970. Like the work we heard earlier by Coleridge Taylor Perkinson, this is a purely acoustical piece for solo cello. How and why did you choose it for this Difficult Grace program? I've known of Alvin Singleton as a composer, really of contemporary music here in the United States for years. But it was in 2017, I believe, via a good colleague and friend of mine, James Ilgenfritz, who's now actually based in Irvine, but at the time we were both in New York. He told me about Alvin, but he also told me about Argoru too, which was one of the works in a series of, I think, nine. I think he's working on his 10th one right now. I began playing it back then and got a chance to actually play it for him a few times in concert and become really close, good friends with him in all these years since then. And I promised 
that one day I would record this work. But not just that promise through friendship and collaboration, but also because it's become a work that I truly adore. Looking at this idea of play, this idea of layers and expression, it, even in the program notes suggest it really is a theater of sound, of layering and extrapolation and reordering in that way. And it takes its name from the Twi language. It's a West African language, mostly known to be spoken in Ghana. And it means literally to play. Yes. <laughs> As a result, uh, this, and I think it's probably true of all the Argoro pieces, is intentionally very virtuosic. Can you talk about some of the techniques employed in your case? Yeah, there are many extended techniques, as we know. Most of what I do on the cello here is has been in the cello vernacular for a very long time. There are some Bartok pizzas where I pull the string up really high and release it to snap onto the fingerboard. What is interesting is that there's so much scurrying left-hand pizzicato and interesting patterns. So all of this is notated, but through working with him, he's like, you can either just play my written improvisational running line or create your own based on the framework that's already here. So that for many years now, that's essentially what I do. And outside of these pizzicato cells, which frame the entire work throughout the whole composition, you have these moments of silence that break it down, give the listener a sense of pause or respite or the idea of cat and mouse or tag in that way. One makes a really quick, fast move or a long, elongated move, just as we were kids. And then you don't know what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden something else more extreme happens. And then eventually a lot of these ideas that he puts forth get strewn into a much longer gestural idea. And that's what happens in the the latter part of, of the work. And then over time, after it really does crest, it starts to break down again to what we're left with is this singular five-note gesture, which is varying from the the very opening gesture is very much so this three-pitch gesture with the last one, a C, that becomes this giant pedal that gets held before silence. Well, great. So we're going to hear again about a two-minute excerpt and we've chosen one from just a little past the halfway point of this 12-minute piece. And I count in this excerpt, and the techniques I hear are high tessitura, harmonics, tremolos, multiple stops, and sul ponticello playing, all in this very short period. In terms of the repertoire, what degree of difficulty would you say this piece is? <laughs> I mean, are we thinking like, what, one to ten? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> I would say it's like a eight and a half, nine. It asks a lot of you in a very short period, even though it's like around 12 minutes. But many of these moments, like when the piece really gets going, he's asking a lot in a short period of time. So it really becomes this choreographic dance to figure out how to get from one thing to the other and just the endurance that it takes to really hold it and to hold the space, especially the silences, and not rush them. All right, well, let's hear some of that then. Here is an excerpt from Argoro II by Alvin Singleton, performed by Seth Parker Woods. Thank <laughs> you. 
You just heard an excerpt from a piece titled Argoro II by Alvin Singleton as performed on cello, of course, by Seth Parker Woods on his new album, Force AD Records, Difficult Grace. And again, uh, you can pre-order it at any time, but it'll ship from whether it's the Sadie Records website or Amazon.com or wherever you like to buy your CDs. Uh, it'll ship on April 14th, and that's the date it will also become available for listening on streaming sites uh, such as Spotify and Apple Music and the higher-end, high-definition streaming sites as well. So however you like to get your music, I hope you'll check this out. The last work on the album is, again, another world premiere, and it's a newly composed piece, as in 2022, by Chicago native Ted Hearn, whose 2015 piece, Bye Bye Huey, appeared on 8th Blackbird's hand-eye album for CD. Now, the piece has a rather provocative title. (laughs) I hope people won't be shocked. It's Free Fucked. Is this your first collaboration with Ted, and how did you first get to know him? It is my first collaboration. I hope it's not going to be my last one. (laughs) It's been a very fruitful collaboration. And this piece, uh, which is really, it's a collaboration between myself, Ted Hearn, and the poet, Kimmy Alabi, whose poetry we set for all the music here that, that one is going to experience. I've known of him for years, but I first met him It must have been 2018 or 2019, somewhere in there, in Chicago, actually. There was a group of people that were presenting a few of his works on a concert there, I think at Elastic Arts in Chicago. Um, And I went to hear it, and I got to meet him for the first time. But I'd known of him, especially with his larger collaborations with Saul Williams. Great. It's in five movements, and it does set poems by Kemi Lobby. And you recite the words as part of the performance. And as I mentioned, the, the titles and some of the words are very provocative. What do these verses really mean to you? Well, the poetry in and of itself is part of a larger collection, poetry by Kemi from their first book of poetry titled Against Heaven, which came out actually last year. And the two of them, Ted and Kemi, first met during a residency at the McDowell Colony, I think in 2021, I think it was. And I think during that time, Ted reached out to me and said, I met this poet and check out some of their stuff. Let me know what you think. And through that, we started to figure out which poems I think spoke most to me. And at the time, I was really trying to find a collaboration that would complete this show that really looked at identity in all of its vast cavern in that way. And especially for Kimmy, really looking at non-binaryism, but also looking at queer identity, looking at what it is to just be in this country or just to be in a space, looking, trying to find more of yourself. And so the poems we ended up with really look at 
singular personalities, one person looking introspectively on themselves, looking at relationships, whether that's friendships or intimate relationships, but also looking at communities and how we work and why we work and the ways we do. Not necessarily posing answers, but more so observations. And it's been really exciting and scary for me because Mm. I am not known as a singer at all. (laughs) But this entire work is a composition for a singing cellist. So there's some parts that that feel very recit-like, but most of the other movements out of the five, I am singing. A journey for me, but one that I'm very thankful for. Well, and of course, this singing is heavily processed and mixed with other electronics, as well as, of course, your cello playing. And Ted Hearn is listed as both a performer and a producer on this piece. Can you talk about his role and how the creation of this piece differed from the others? I should note the others were recorded all at Chicago Recording Company uh, here in downtown Chicago. But this one also included sessions in Los Angeles. How did all that work? So all of the cello parts we recorded there in Chicago and all the vocals we did here in L.A. because I think it was important that Ted be in the space, the two of us could be there together to really harness the best possible versions of the vocals, especially all the processing so we can really riff off of each other and figure out what worked best, especially as we had already given performances of it on stage and to try to find an even tighter presentation for it processing in a way that is different from just recording voice in a concert hall in this way because they were the raw vocals and then all of that I had to place the vocals diphthongs all of that in a very specific way so that the processing auto-tune and vocoder would receive it in a very specific way so it's almost like I was really playing another instrument and trying to figure out how, as an untrained singer, to produce the sounds or, or the, the lyrics in a very specific way, especially with a different type of diction that I would never do, even if I was on stage. So some things had to be over-enunciated or just harder T's, harder R's. That feels very unnatural, especially very unnatural traditional singing. So all of that was done here in L.A., I'll back up a little bit because there's this thing when people are notated as performers or are not notated or given credit. It's because many times we're dealing with the electronics on albums and sometimes people aren't given the credit as creators of that, as performers of that. So Ted exists both as the creator of all of the electronics, but also in the very last song titled After We Ruin, He is the second vocalist on that track with me. So that's the one duet we finally do together. We were working on all this, and originally I did a draft recording of both of the voices, and we listened back, and I was you know, it would be kind of nice if we did one track together, because he himself also being a singer. It would be nice if we were able to do this together, and we both appear on this. So he appears, of course, as the creator and performer of the electronics, but also as vocalist on the last track. And of course, working heavily together to produce this entire thing in a very specific way that has this avant-garde pop. It's it's really a lot of fun and it's been so exciting to delve into this and find this very hyper-focused, mediated presentation of the work for the album. Well, I think to give people a flavor of this collection of five movements, uh, we'd hear the first part of the second movement, which is the longest title, (laughs) (laughs) A Wedding or What We Unlearned from Descartes. What does that title mean to you? You know, I'm still trying to figure that one out. All right. (laughs) 
That's the beauty of art, right? Yes. <laughs> you can experience something without necessarily intellectually understanding everything about it, because we're obviously dealing in the realms of emotion here. Mm-hmm. So uh, anything you want to say to, about the first part of this piece? This work in and of itself, it really is introspective, but it is looking at a relationship. It Kimmy doesn't basically give you a deeper clue is, is this an intimate relationship or is this even possibly just thinking of oneself in duality? But it's quite interesting. And over time it evolves, we start to realize that the sacrifices that one has to make in partnership is both giving and taking. But when things are balanced enough, there's something beautiful that can kind of come out of it in the long term. The movement's over five minutes, so we'll hear about the first half of this. So again, this is A Wedding, or What We Unlearned from Descartes, from the collection Free Fucked by Ted Hearn, as performed vocals and cello by Seth Parker Woods with underlying electronics by the composer Ted Hearn. You just heard an excerpt from a movement titled A Wedding or What We Unlearn from Descartes from a collection by Ted Hearn that appears on the 
album Difficult Grace, starring cellist Seth Parker Woods, who, as you noticed, also sang the heavily processed vocal line, and there's also underlying electronics by the composer on that track. Well, as you can hear, this is quite a diverse collection, both in terms of the musics and the composers represented. Seth, what should listeners take uh, from hearing the album as a whole? If anything, this album is a representation of boundaries we can push to find a deeper understanding of who we are and why we are and where we've come from. And would you say that's also representative of the show itself when you perform it live? Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I should ask, are you still uh, performing Difficult Grace in concert? I am actually on April 20th. We'll be bringing the show to Chicago, which is quite fitting because a deep Chicago representation on this album and the collaborations that came out of it. We'll be presenting it at the Harris Theater. Great. The show was on hiatus during the pandemic for a while, except possibly for the video we talked about that you did from the University of Chicago. How long were you unable to perform this live for audiences in person? Quite a while. I restarted performances, I think, in 2021. I had a few in New York and then in Toronto and, oh, at Dartmouth College last May. So now, and that was kind of still in the first iteration. So along that way, it was still redeveloping and figuring out and making sure everything that was in the show still fit very much so. I should note that the singleton and one of the works by Nathalie Joachim, Damwenyo, do not exist in the latest and final version of the show, but they had in previous versions. And the latest version, I assume, incorporates Ted Hearn's piece now? Oh, yeah, it still incorporates Ted Hearn's piece, as well as a work by Devontae Hines. Oh, wonderful. So besides Difficult Grace, what are some of your recent performing highlights, and what do you have upcoming in terms of appearances and projects? Oh, it's been a busy season. I just came off a big recital tour with my duo partner, Chicago-based pianist Andrew Rosenblum. We've had quite a few great dates around the country and just wrapped up here at the Wallace Performing Arts Center here in Los Angeles. I'm on a few concerto dates. The last one was at Oberlin College performing the concerto by Taishan Sori titled for Roscoe Mitchell for solo cello and orchestra. And so I'll be continuing on with a few more performances of Difficult Grace, along with a huge new commission by Carnegie Hall for Claire Chase, myself, and Katinka Klein from the Chicago Symphony, which we'll present in late May. And then I have a few residencies and some performances at the Centre Pompidou in Paris and then in Aix-en-Provence later uh, this summer. And then I'm going on vacation. <laughs> ah, good. By the way, I should have mentioned that you were part of Hilary Hahn's national tour not uh, that long ago. How did that relationship develop, and are there possible future collaborations? Well, of course, I've known of Hillary for a long time. But we connected in the, I guess, the early aughts of the pandemic. It may have come in 2019, actually, via social media. We connected that way. I think it was maybe around the artist Bisa Butler. And then we started having phone conversations and talking about music and aesthetics. And she invited me to join the tour with her and Andreas Hefliger, the pianist. And so we had a really great tour last season. And we'll reconvene, Hillary and I, next season in Germany for a series of concerts. And she'll join me on a recital in Dortmund, part of a big festival that's actually happening there in November. And there's some other stuff that I can't mention right now, but it's been really great just to get to know her beyond just a collaborator, but counting her as a very dear friend. 
So I'm looking forward to all the things that we have coming up in the future. Well, it certainly sounds like your career is on quite a trajectory. So congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. We always end these podcasts with a question about what makes Chicago special as a musical city. And you're someone who's been based in many different musical and academic environments in recent years. So how would you say Chicago compares to the other places you've been? And are there any things about this musical community that you would call uniquely Chicago? I chose Chicago when I was first moving back to the States and trying to figure out what city to go to. And Chicago kept being one of the cities that popped up as recommendations from a lot of people. But I also should say that I studied there briefly in the early, early 2000s. But it had been 15 years or more since I had been there and had seen anything. It is a very different city now than it was then. One of the things I love most about Chicago is just the openness, I think, and the space that so many different types of creative artists can actually exist there. And it's in ways that you find like New York City, it it can feel oversaturated. Not that that's a bad thing, but there's just so many artists there and it's hard to be heard and to be seen and have space be held in that way. And there's a lot happening in Chicago. And I think especially now these days, especially in the last 10 years, with even within the worlds of dance and theater and classical music and early music and Renaissance music. So there's a lot actually happening there that is extremely attractive and so many different artists that are constantly coming through there. But as I get older and I meet more musicians, it's funny how so many of these classical musicians that I come across or in in blues music or in jazz music or in dance, they were born in Chicago. And kind of got their early starts there. So Chicago really has been putting out a lot of amazing artists that are to this day doing such great work. Huge kudos to all of the great institutions that even go back to early arts education up until, you know, the big presenters that are there that are doing such great work. And I just find it to be one of the major hubs and epicenters of creative arts. Well, that's terrific. I want to thank you, Seth Parker Woods. First of all, for this wonderful album, but also for being my guest on this Classical Chicago podcast. I also want to thank Sydney Gillard, who edits these podcasts and has been doing so for the last several years. If you like the way these podcasts sound, she's largely responsible. So thank you for that, Sydney. I'm Jim Ginsburg, founder and president of Sadie Records and the host of these podcasts, of course. Thank you so much for listening.